We have been in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm sorry, going into chapter 3 this morning. We've been in chapter 2 verses 13 and really all the way through the end of chapter 3 relates to authority and structures of authority. So we're continuing on with this this morning. We have talked over the past weeks about the Lord God as our ultimate and final authority. We've talked about governing authorities in the world. We've talked about authorities and the workplace. And we've gone through this um, excursion that Peter takes us on related to the sufferings of Christ and suffering through difficult situations. As Christ suffered, so also we ought to. And now this morning, we're going into the territory of husbands and authority of husbands in marriage, and then we'll go uh, in a few more weeks into the authority of parents over children. And this really takes us through the entire gamut of authority that the Lord has laid out in the world. Altogether, it relates to God's design of order in the world. Without order, without authority of some way, there is chaos in the world. And I think all of us that are old enough understand this. If you let everyone just go whatever way they're going to go, you end up with chaos. And I think that many of us that are watching the things of the world and care about what is happening in the world now understand that we are moving towards a place of things falling apart. We're moving towards a state of chaos as there is less and less order in our society. And we get nearer to what we see in the book of Judges where it says that every person did what was right in his own heart. And that's chaos. That's everybody going in every which way. Our culture despises the message that I'm getting ready to preach to you this morning. And I fully expect uh, to be opposed by certain people for saying what I'm saying this morning. But I'm preaching to you God's word. And I expect God's word to have opposition in this world. But I need you to know a few things before we read our passage this morning. In the first that God has designed marriage, God designed marriage before sin entered the world. I encourage you to go back and look at the book of Genesis and read what you find there. And we find there that God created the world and that he created the world with a design, with a purpose to what he created. And that he created people to function in a normal way inside of marriage. Normal meaning not for everyone, but this is the way normally that men and women will relate to each other, that they desire this end. And that God designed marriage to be the the relationship of one biological man and one biological woman. And it's strange. If I was even preaching two years ago, I would never have to put the word biological in there. But I do now. Because it's not one person that identifies as a male and one person that identifies as a female coming together in a relationship. It is a person that God caused to be born as a female and a person that God caused to be born as a male, intending for their lives to carry out these purposes, then coming together in marriage. And it is vitally important in everything that I'm saying this morning that you understand that these two human beings, this man and this woman, were created before God equal in their worth, in their standing, and their dignity before God. They're both created in the image of God. They're both created as human beings, but male and female, he created them. And that as our world will 
shout from the rooftops forever today that there is no difference between these two people. They're just human beings that are no different, and they choose to create themselves however they want to. This is not what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that men and women are different in body and in psyche and in role, and that this is not unintentional. This is the way that God designed for it to be. And that the two of them complement each other when they come together in marriage. That these differences are not differences that are like puzzle pieces that don't fit. A godly man and a godly woman complement each other to where they come together in marriage and they create one beautiful whole that allows for a family to be created. And I need us to hear this as well because today the world doesn't know what marriage is for. They think that marriage is purely for either physical pleasure or two people coming together to amass a greater pile of money and stuff. And this is not what the purpose of marriage is for. One of the ends of marriage is for the purpose of family. The idea that the normal outworking of this will be children and then generations and then multiple generations and that these families and generations create a heritage and they create a stability for society. And so this is a part of what it means for two people to be married. And in this, it has been given to the husband to lead with proper authority. It's been given to the husband to lead with proper authority. So as we read our passage here this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, I want you to understand that in the time that we have this morning, we're going to go over the first six verses, which is related to the wife's role in this, and then we're going to spend all week next week going over verse 7, which is the husband's role in this, and that they both have distinct roles and purposes here. So please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you her, are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, as we begin this, I need us to hear one thing uh, clearly from the beginning. This passage relates to husbands and wives, and I need you to hear me that this does not say in any way, nor does the Bible teach in any way, that all women ought to be submissive to all men. That is the message of Islam. That is not the message of Christianity. The message that is being spoken of here relates to husbands and wives, two people that have come together by their choice to make a covenant with each other because they want to live together and they choose to live together and they choose to enter into a relationship that would honor the Lord. And so within that specific category, we are talking about these things. And I would argue to you this morning that the scriptures mean what they say. People 
do all kinds of gymnastics in the words to try to get out of this passage meaning what it means. But the words of Scripture mean what they mean. And the translation here is extremely clear. The word subject has to do with authority. The word is hypotasso, and it means to be submissive to something. And it always, and used in the New Testament, implies a relationship of submission to an authority. It relates to, it's been used, it's used many times in the New Testament. It's used of Jesus and his authority to his parents when he was young in Luke 2.51. It's used of demons being subject to the disciples' authority in Luke 10.17. It's used of citizens being subject to governing authorities in Romans 13, Titus 3, and right here in 1 Peter 2. It's used of the universe being subject to Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1. It's used of unseen spiritual powers being subject to Christ in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's used of Christ being subject to God the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, of church members being subject to church leaders, 1 Corinthians 16. It's used of wives being subject to their husbands in Colossians 3, Titus 2, this passage in Ephesians 5. Of the church being subject to Christ, in Ephesians 5, of servants being subject to their masters in Titus 2, and of Christians being subject to God in Hebrews 12 and James 4. And nowhere, as Grudem writes correctly, none of these relationships are ever reversed. That is, husbands are never told to be subject to their wives, nor government subject to its citizens, nor masters to servants, nor disciples to demons, etc., etc., on down the line. And so I ask you this morning, why? We believe here that God's commands are both right and good, and that as we follow after the commands of Christ, which often initially do not seem good to us, in the end we begin to see their goodness. So why would God order marriage in this way? I believe it relates to leadership, and as I said earlier, we, this is in the midst of this long discussion and teaching on leadership. And that every organization and every group needs leadership. We've all been sitting at the table before when a group of people can't even decide where to go to dinner. Because nobody can make up their mind. And, and it gets down to would somebody just please make a decision as to where we're going to dinner. And somebody will finally say we're going to Chick-fil-A or we're going wherever. I say that because we have a, a representative here today. But, <laughs> but we're, going, uh, we're going somewhere for dinner. And thanks, it's just a relief. Like somebody just made a decision. And there are two types of bad leaders in this world. Those that just make bad decisions, and there are those that make no decisions. And so a family, I need you to see, is, a, is the microcosm of all community. It is where community, it's the building block of community. Families come together to create this church. The families of this church go out to create this community. Families create neighborhoods. They create schools. They are the building block of society. And I will argue this morning that every family needs leadership. And God's design is that the husband would lead in the family. And so many of us have experienced bad leadership. And some of us have never experienced good leadership. And that is unfortunate. And so when we get into talking about this passage and understanding what this means, we have to talk about leadership and what leadership is. What is good leadership? I think there's four basic things that come out of good leadership. The first is that leadership, good leadership, sets direction. It sets a direction for where we are going and what we are doing. 
But a good leader sets the direction of what we're doing and where we are going, not by sitting at his desk or her desk alone and saying, this is where we're going, and I'm going to go out and tell everybody where we're going. Any good leader brings people together and gets the input of those under his leadership and says, what do you think about this, and what do you think about this, and what's your perspective on this? And you gather the, the, the group knowledge, and then you begin to say, this is where I think that we should go. And what happens is there is a consensus amongst the people as to what ought to happen, but I'm telling you, you will never end up going in that direction or stay in that direction without leadership. Leadership, secondly, works to inspire and to motivate. A good leader is always looking for the good of the people under that person's leadership and is working to inspire those people to see them become more than what they were before, to go beyond where they are now, which relates to the third aspect of leadership, that leadership cultivates talent, leadership cultivates abilities, cultivates interest in those that they are leading. And so a good leader looks at the person that is under their leadership and says, what qualities does this person have? What things has God put in the life of this person and how can I cultivate those things and fan them into flame and see that person become all that they can possibly be? And that that person being all that they can be will strengthen the environment of what we are doing. As a leader here in the church and as the leadership of the elders in this church, we are not trying to make you be something that you are not. We are trying to cultivate the gifts and talents that God has given to you to see you grow up into all that God has intended for you to be and that as you use those gifts and spiritual gifts that God has given to you, it will strengthen the church and the church will thrive. But the fourth part of leadership, which cannot be overlooked, is the ordering authority of leadership. The authority of leadership. Leadership keeps order by exerting authority. Now, I will argue to you this morning that this should be rare. This should not be the normal thing. If a person is constantly exerting their authority and their will, we end up with a dictatorship. That is not the type of leadership that anyone enjoys or wants, and it is not anywhere in the scriptures given as an example of what leadership ought to look like. There ought to be freedom under good leadership to have wide latitude of how we do what we do, but there is still direction and there is order. But no matter how you go about it, we live in a sinful, fallen world, and so there is always the need of appropriate governing authorities down to where we are here today to exert some form of authority to keep this, whatever the organization may be, on track. And this morning, as we're talking about it, there will be the need for a Christian husband to exert authority at times in order to keep the family on track. A second thing that I would say about Christian marriage that is very important is that Christian marriage has a generally united direction because of the Christian nature of that marriage. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when a husband and wife come together and they both are seeking after Christ, they are both basically going in the same direction. When marriages fall apart, it is usually because people are at odds with each other and they are going in opposite directions. And I can absolutely guarantee you this morning that if you and your spouse are seeking hard after the Lord, you will basically be going in the same direction because both of you will see yourselves as under the authority of Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about this a lot next week. The husband is not an authority of himself. 
in the same way that a, a, a boss at work or a governing official in this world are not of their own authority. We are all under the authority of the Lord God, and we have to conform to that authority. And we'll get to more of that later. But when a husband and a wife both understand that Christ Jesus is the end of these things and they are seeking hard after Christ, it resolves 99% of the struggles that we see in marriage. Whenever I am counseling uh, in this type of a situation, one of my first questions is always, how is your relationship with the Lord? Are you seeking after Christ daily? Are you in prayer? Are you in God's word? In nearly unanimously the answer is no something has fallen off about our relationship with Christ and then the gears begin to grind and then the wheels fall off and then it goes from bad to worse and so the general unification of marriage comes from following after Christ and under his authority but even then there will be times when the authority of a husband and his leadership needs to be exerted to make a decision that carries significant consequences when there is no agreement as to direction in the marriage. And so uh, the husband must lead in this situation and the scriptures tell us that the wife then must follow. And follow not with an angry bitter heart but with a pure, gentle, respectful heart as we go into these categories. You know, in our life, there have been some examples of this, and I think it is a very common few examples. I think it's, in fact, the most common example of this situation. The, the most significant one in our marriage related to a move. In late 2008, 2009, uh, I had a, my career ground down to a great big zero, and I had to find a different job. And we, we had to, like, I couldn't figure anything out in the area that we were at. And it was just very difficult. Those of you that have been through financial struggles understand how difficult that is. And it came to where I, I got hired by a company, and that company was going to move me, us, to Miami. Miami, Florida was not on any of our radars, and it was not a spot that we wanted to move to. And nothing about that move was easy. But in the struggle of what are we to do and how are we to do it, it ultimately came down to me saying, we need to, this is what we need to do. This is what we're, we're going to have to do. And it was, a hard, it was a hard move. But man, I will give such praise to my wife, and I don't want to embarrass her in any way, but what an amazing example of the things that we're talking about here. And I will tell you that I have seen many examples of the opposite. Those of you here know people where one person had to take a job somewhere else and they said, well, that's good. You take that. It's been nice knowing you. I'm going to stay right here and uh, maybe we'll meet up later. And that's the end of that. Because one person, the wife would not submit to the direction of where the husband felt like it needed to go specifically in a work-related situation. When, as we'll talk about some later, it is the role, it's the primary role of the husband to provide for the physical needs of the wife and the family. And if that's all that can happen, and we've worked through this hard, and this, we've reached a place where we can't decide, someone has to decide. And I'm telling you this morning, it, it, the husband needs to decide. God's given him that authority and that role. Now, it needs to be done in a particular way and all this stuff, and we're going to talk about that next week. But does a Christian wife have to follow the lead of an unbelieving husband? This passage this morning directly relates to this. It says that even if some do not obey the word, some being husbands, 
that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct, which is interesting. I want to read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which speaks directly to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, Paul writes about marriage and marriage between the believing and the unbelieving, a marriage that already exists because it is a difficult circumstance and people for ages have been asking, what am I to do with this very difficult situation of a believer being married to an unbeliever? How is this supposed to work out? And Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she uh, consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so the commendation here is that if we are in a generally peaceable marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, that the believer should remain with the unbeliever. Why? For the sake of their salvation. The most important thing always relates to the soul and the nature of the soul. Not to our personal happiness per se or for our material wealth, but for what is going to happen to the soul of this other person. And so it talks about that being a state of holiness, which I believe means near to salvation. Like you are brought near to the things of Christ through your spouse living out the gospel every day in your house through having a godly spirit. And then because of that, your children are also brought near unto Christ because of that being lived out in the house. Not an easy situation by any means. But the disobedient and unbelieving husband might come to salvation by the virtuous conduct of the wife. There is a focus on salvation and the gospel and a very different life being lived by a believing wife in the home of an unbelieving husband. And that through living a very different life, something of the gospel is preached to this person that they might understand who Christ Jesus is. And so the character qualities of the heart listed in verse 2 down through verse 4 are respectful, pure, and a person of inner beauty and character that shines through greater than outward beauty. So the first is respectful, which, means, which is the opposite. If we look at, at the, the antonyms of these things, a disrespectful, a nagging, complaining, angry, willful person. The opposite is someone who is respectful, and as we'll see later, gets to gentleness and kindness. A woman who is pure, which relates to the righteousness and the godliness of her character, which as we'll see in the next category, something about her godliness and her righteousness is the most radiant part of her character above all things. And that's where uh, Peter goes next. He says that her adorning should not be external, and he lists a series of things, braided hair, putting on gold, wearing jewelry, my argument to you this morning is not that a woman cannot be and should not be beautiful. Let's hold off on that. 
but that the most important part, what must shine through the most, the primary beauty of a godly woman is not how she wears her hair or what, she, what kind of jewelry she wears or what type of dress she puts on, but the godliness of her heart shining through. And this is the total opposite of the world. We should not be surprised that when we, what we find in Scripture is the opposite of what we see in the world. Our world is obsessed with outward appearance. Absolutely obsessed with it. Whether it be wearing certain name brands, wearing certain types of, of jewelry in certain types of ways, or how you show yourself on social media and what that looks like, or whether or not you need to spend a large amount of money like trying to remake yourself through surgery, or whatever it may be, it is an obsession with the outward appearance. But a godly woman is not like that. Her heart is most passionately taken up with seeking after Christ and having a character that is like Christ. And it is important here. What it says is precious to God in the sight, in the sight of God of, of how a woman ought to be, what type of character she should have. And it speaks of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, meaning not like the passing beauty of outward things. All the closet of clothes that you have now that's going to go out of style or whatever color jewelry is in now and is not in five years from now or whatever it may be now that's passing and is not in fashion later, there, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit never goes out of fashion with God. And it is a beautiful thing, something that God, it says, in which God's sight is very precious. We follow after certain things in our lives related to what we think people think about us. And I want to urge you this morning, ladies, that what God thinks about you is more important than what any other person thinks about you. And what is precious in His sight is a heart of virtue. And when we look at gentleness and meekness, I want you to see that this is not a female quality. But this is a quality of godliness that is important to the Lord and was central to Christ Jesus himself. This exact same word is used of Christ himself when he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus himself here, this is a verse often quoted because we know it's a beautiful verse and something that speaks of an openness of, of help and of coming to someone and coming alongside them and strengthening them. This word of gentleness and meekness relates to one not easily angered, one patient, one humble, one yielding. And this is how Christ Jesus was. This was his nature. And we are to have the same thing in our heart, and especially a godly woman. It's something that you should pray for and seek after because it is like Christ Jesus and it is precious in his sight. Ladies, I would ask you this morning, whose opinion and whose opinion do you care about most in your life? I think that how you are shaped Really, there is something, there's someone that you care about most as to who they, what they think about you. And it shapes what's going on in your life. And I encourage you very much for it not to be your co-workers, not to be an ungodly friend, and certainly not to be social media, but for it to be God. And what God values as precious that you also value as precious. This type of character is precious to God. 
and of a powerful Christian witness to unbelieving husbands. This is to contrast to a woman primarily interested in external appearance. Uh, something that the world calls beauty that is only skin deep or a shallowness of character. Someone that is consumed by the, the temporal or the material things of this world. It's most shockingly in, in our face laid out in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So there's something terrible. There's just something messed up about a person that has such an intense focus on their outward appearance, but has no character in their heart. It's, it's not what it should be, and we know it. The point of this is that the primary beauty of a Christian woman should radiate from her godly character. And as they have a proper godly character, it will induce also a proper self-care that relates to beauty of their person, of their physical person. But we know what we care about most and what we fixate on. And I would ask you this morning, women, if you look at the time of your week and you look at the, the passions of your week, can you clearly say that a greater passion is for knowing Christ and to being near to him and being in prayer and being a godly woman more than being related to how it is that you're going to adorn your outward appearance? Is most of your time given to what's happening at the gym or what's happening with your hair or what's happening with whatever, all these things here? And only you know the answer to that question. But you will see a marked difference in your life when the primary passion and affections of your heart is given to seeking after Christ and after the passions of the things that he says are precious in his sight. We're given an example here of Sarah, uh, which is an important example she was a person married to a very imperfect man. And if you've forgotten, go back and read about Abraham. And it's interesting. It says in following after her example, there's an encouragement not to be afraid. Like there's always a fear of following after someone that we know is a sinner and is an imperfect person. But we're entrusting ourselves to God, whether it be the following after a boss at work or an imperfect government or a wife following after an imperfect and sinful husband. But I would also put forward to you this morning the example of amazing women in this church. There are many amazing godly women in this church. And if what I'm saying to you this morning is something that is confusing to you and you have more questions than answers, I want to encourage you to reach out to some of the godly women in this church who live this out. And they live this out in a wonderful way in their marriages and with their children. It is a blessing to all of this congregation and it will help you come alongside someone that is already living in this good and beautiful way. But before I wrap up this morning and turn it over to uh, Doug to lead our Lord's Supper, we need to understand that there are two caveats that are very, very important to this. The first caveat is that no woman should ever follow or submit to her husband in an act of evil or doing something that is wrong. We must obey God rather than men. And we talked about that uh, early on related to governing authorities, and it very much relates to marriage as well. No husband, as we'll talk about next week, has the right to ever pull his, his wife into something that is wrong. And secondly, no woman should ever submit herself to be abused by a violent or out-of-control man. That is not what this passage is saying, and we'll talk about that more next week when we talk about husbands and their role with a wife. But if you are in a relationship that is abusive, you need uh, immediate intervention into that relationship for your own protection and your own good. And so I want to be very clear in saying that this morning as well.
But we should not have the exception dictate the rule. What God has said for us is a guideline and a rule that will take us down a path of blessing and peace. Let the exception be the exception, and we will work through those to try to bring into bear what ought to be. But let us not throw out what God has said for the sake of an exception. I understand that these ways are deeply at odds with the culture of our time. But if you realize in your heart that your life is off track and that something is failing about your life and something is deeply broken about your life, I would encourage you to look at these ways and consider them carefully and walk by faith in them and delve into what does this mean? What is God teaching here? And come alongside someone that can help you learn how to walk in these good ways. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. This is a difficult passage, but one I believe has great importance to our lives and to the functioning of our marriages. And I pray that you would help us as husbands and help us as wives and help us those seeking marriage, Lord, that we would understand what these ways mean and that we would be able to walk in them. And by faith, there would be blessing and there would be peace and there would be joy. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen.